Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Time, Time Bandits, Bandits Minute. Minute. Time Bandits Minute is a podcast in which Duncan Shields and Curtis Blaze analyze and scrutinize the 1981 Terry Gilliam movie, Time Bandits. One minute at a time. Welcome back to Time Bandits Minute, and we are being joined today for Minute 11 by... I am Rick from the Mad Max Minute. And Julia, also from Mad Max. Minute 11 starts with uh, Kevin discovering something very odd about his wall, and ends with our gang being chased by the Supreme Being. We are well and truly off to the races here in this minute. This is where... the rubber hits the road, I guess, or whatever you want to you want to say. This is the the takeoff. We are fully into the adventure right now, and yeah. it is nonstop all the way to the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something very odd is going on with his wall. Yeah. Now you described it before, and you described it in the last minute as this sort of low, rumbly bass noise. Yeah. To to me, it always sounded just exactly like you would expect it to sound. Mm-hmm. If there were no wheels, like a kind of stuttering, yeah. pushing the wall, and it's stuttering along and kind of floating, but but getting caught and having to push some real effort into it to push it. Yeah, yeah, some real real friction. And they are really throwing themselves into this thing to get it moving down the hallway. Yeah, for sure. And they're ecstatic when it first moves, right? Randall's like, he's found it, the way out. And, and this is, sorry, this is the minute where Kevin says, it's never done that before. Like... <laughs> I don't know. Kevin just seems incapable of panic. He's such a good kid. He's just like, whoa, <laughs> he that's wild. He's... You know? It's one of the standout qualities of this actor perfectly displaying the, I want to say, unflappability of a tween. Is sure. that is that is an 11 yeah, year old yeah. a tween? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Full on right in the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah, he just sort of takes it all as it comes. And, you know, but he's such a scientist, right? Like, he's such a historian that he's, uh, yeah, it doesn't even, it's wild that it doesn't really occur to him to, to, to panic. He's just kind of like, wow. He's just amazed at it all. There's also an element of sadness, too. And I don't know if that was taken into account while he was making acting choices, but he's pretty much on his own. His parents are yeah. not paying oh, attention to him. They're so yeah. checked out. Yeah. He has to take care of himself. He learned a long time ago, probably, not to overreact to things and act like a kid. Mm-hmm. Right, or he doesn't have so... that luxury of being a child. Yeah. Right. If he, if nobody's fed him by 9 o'clock, he's got to figure out where the, uh, where the macaroni and cheese is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is just, it's something interesting that's happening rather than the exact same day that's played out for the, every day of his life, for like, you know, the last 11 years. And that home life situation is not mentioned explicitly in his feelings about it until much later on in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think it could have been brought to attention earlier, more than once. Yeah, that's sort of one of the issues that I've got with the film on the whole is that... I never got the impression that he was having a horrible home life. I kind of got the impression that this was just his life. Like it wasn't like at the end, I was sort of like, are his parents supposed to be horrible jerks? Like, I think, are they, are they supposed to be the bad guys? Are they like, cause they were checked out, but I don't know, as a fellow 11 year old watching this movie, adults had their own stuff going on. They were, they were, they were off in adult land doing their adult things with their adult worries, you know, whereas kids were not. So like, I didn't really see them as evil. And so, uh, you know, I wonder a lot about, it's like you said, it's not expressly, you know, when he's, when he's yelling at Kevin for making too much noise, it's not like Kevin starts crying or something. There's not like a, there's not like a, like a a kick the dog moment that you need from like a villain. 
It's not like Kevin is afraid that he's going to get hit again. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And Kevin is our point of view character for the movie. So his parents, we're seeing his parents from his point of view. So when we see Mm -hmm. them tuned out in front of the TV, when we see them only concerned about the 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 hallmarks of childhood like okay you have to eat and then you have to let it settle and then you can go to bed and you can't go to bed before Mm -hmm. that because then you haven't eaten and he sees them as so concerned with a then b then c and you know what maybe that's what adult life looks like to kids yeah see kevin's parents have bought so hard into the idea of the capitalist um, uh, not American, but capitalist middle class lifestyle where you go to work, you come home, you read the newspaper, you watch the television, you keep up with the Joneses, you purchase and consume, and you stick to these nuclear family things where you have 2.5 kids and they eat their dinner, let it settle, and then go to bed. And, you know, it is bedtime. You shut out the light. That is your role as a child, and everybody just keeps moving forward as a drone in the system. Which is why this this wow, opportunity Rick, is... of embracing chaos with the time bandits <laughs> probably is very yeah. appetizing to a kid like Kevin. Yeah. And even... It's like in uh, Groundhog Day. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, something that I really noticed was a lot of the sensory input was weird in the opening of this movie. Mostly it was the um, the TV was like super loud and very chaotic in its noise. It felt very noisy. Yeah. And then his bedroom door shut and well, it was silent. Well, again, that's from Kevin's point of view. Yeah. He just shut out the adult world mm. and it's gone. It doesn't mm. matter to him anymore. Now it's just his world. Terry Gilliam really demonstrated visually to the rot that's going on with his parents. Not just in their actions, but in how they live. Everything is just chaos in their life. And they don't even have enough, they don't even care enough to try to get it under control, much less have the energy to raise a child. And it's not that they're bad people or evil people, it's just that everybody is on cruise control in this house. Yeah, they've they've lost a a sense of wonder. Like, Kevin... Earlier in this movie, he's sitting there and he's reading a book and he's like, Dad, did you know that these Greek soldiers could kill someone 42 different ways without a weapon? This is amazing. And Kevin's dad is just sitting there with his face in the paper, not even entertaining the idea that, okay, my son seems to be interested in Grecian combat. That's interesting. Maybe I can engage him on this level. But... Mm-hmm. Nope, that's not his role. He has come home and he is on cruise control for the rest of the night. Yeah, it just blanks him. I don't think he even responds, right? He just continues talking. Does anybody here have kids besides me? Yeah. Nope. You have kids. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so so you know the deal, like, I'm growing up and I want my kid to be into Star Wars because I love Star Wars. But he is into Pokemon. Mm-hmm. So you know what I'm into? <laughs> I'm into Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because because that's what you do when you're a parent. But they're, but these parents did the equivalent of just staying into Star Wars and too bad for Kevin if he doesn't like it. <laughs> okay. Is yeah, that sure. an 80s thing? Is that just the style of parenting that was common in the 80s? In the, in the 80s in North America, we had something called latchkey kids. And uh, that was like you, you walked yourself home from school and you had a key to your house and you let yourself in. And in a lot of cases, you made your own dinner because this is when the, the divorce rate was rising. Um, and the sort of like helicopter parenting didn't really 
exist as we know it now. Like there was very much uh, kids. A lot of kids were just on their own. Like, you know, you just make make yourself right. Like so when they talk now about, you know, like don't leave your kid alone for, for very long or whatever, you'd have like. 80s and 80s and early 90s kids were like uh <laughs> you know my, yeah my oh yeah mom got off my mom got off shift at 11 30 at night and i got right. home from school at three so yeah i tell you the those decades i bet those were the heydays for serial killers and kidnappers and whatnot it was before mm-hmm. technology where everybody knew where everybody was at all one all you had to do was get away before the police showed up and you could get away with anything you wanted there's a john yep. mulaney sketch about how Back in the 1920s and 30s, you'd have these bank robbers who would dress up to rob the bank and then tell everybody in attendance who exactly they were that was perpetuating this thing. And then all they had to do was leave and they would be fine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Being a a kid in the 80s, we just didn't see our parents. And I'm going to say this. It is horrifying to, to generations that don't know, but we were already experimenting with, with like alcohol and sex by the time we were between 12 and 14 because we were just all alone together and just kind of raising each other and finding out this stuff and not having parents to talk to or anything. That's changed a lot since then. Oh, for sure. A lot of people talk about being told, uh, you know, just be home by dinner. Right. So if you really want to know kind of what the end result of being the, uh, the latchkey generation, us Generation Xers, go look at the movie called Kids that was made in the 90s, mm. which is a sort of awful but also semi-nostalgic look at being a kid in the 80s. Yeah, it's a harsh film. Holy moly, that's a harsh film. But it's also like how we were. It's pretty honest. Like, it's not my exact experience, yeah. but it's a, it's a... No, it's not my exact experience either, yeah, but you knew yeah. people. A darkly honest uh, depiction of, of the a lot of situations that were happening back then. So I think basically the, the, the people that had it a little bit rougher than us probably in generation X is what that movie was like. And like today's overreaction of like helicopter parenting and stuff, I think is a direct reaction to, uh, yeah, to, to kids sure. that were raised that way and are now adults. Perhaps like, an well, overcorrection. Not... Yeah. We're just Perhaps swinging wildly back and forth. <laughs> swerving yeah. wildly across every yeah. lane on the highway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there could be a happy medium in there for sure that we haven't hit yet. It was a lot different. Being a latchkey kid was a lot different than kids have now. Everybody talks about free-range parenting. Yeah. And I think that's an attempt to have that sort of self-reliance, to instill that self-reliance in a kid, but it is not the same as what we no, were. And I think there's, there's lots of positives and negatives to be said about it. Like, yeah. I think there was, like, I think you could call it like a benign neglect, you know, like an <laughs> benign think, neglect is a perfect word <laughs> for it. It, yes. it, it. it taught you how to uh, just, you know, entertain yourself, take care of yourself. Uh, yeah. Like you, you know. wouldn't find out, you wouldn't have clean clothes to take to school all the time. You would find out from your friends that you stunk and then you would go home and learn how to do laundry. And you wouldn't know that you had it rough. You know, like, right. you know, today's parents would be like, oh my God, you were left alone for nine hours at a time every day. And you're like, is that bad? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, like, it's not like you were suffering. You were just, that was your reality. And I think there's a lot to be said for, for kids accepting the reality that they're born in. And uh, like, that's just the normal. And I think a lot of people hit 40 and then they go, oh, wow, geez, I guess my childhood was awful. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know? oh, and that brings us back around perfectly to Kevin. Yeah. I think the term benign neglect describes exactly why he is the way he is. He's not suffering from imagination. He's his his edge hasn't been dulled. He is a bright, no. yeah. strong, inquisitive, curious, vibrant child, you know, like so I think a very similar character would be that kid in Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, that's a good comparison, absolutely. But yeah. I like how he reacts here because it's like I was I was, I was saying in, in Groundhog Day on the final day when he wakes up and he's like, this is different. Anything different is good. <laughs> you know, and I think Kevin's like, oh my God, my wall's moving. There's like, you know, six wild people in my in my room. This is, this is, oh, it's happening. You know, like, <laughs> really halfway jazzed that this, this is, uh, this is happening. Like, well, and remind me, is this the minute where we actually see him make the choice? Uh, let me see here. Uh, I believe so. I review that. Yes, it is. It is. It is. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. This is the minute. This is the minute where he this does is a that. Back, exactly. Yeah, he looks back, back and forth. Back. Yeah. He's literally standing at the threshold between yep. his room and the hallway, deciding which way to go. Yep. Uh, the hallway, real quick, before we move past this journey down the hallway, the wall moving down was anybody else expecting a willy wonka hallway where it got smaller where it got smaller as it got further down oh no i was uh that didn't occur to me i was absolutely expecting that that's what this hallway was going to be like that by the time we got to the end the the dwarves would be full height in the room you know i think you're, you're kicking off a really dim memory of when i saw it for the first time i think i did think that's naturally where it was gonna lead that it would they would shrink so that they were regular height and kevin would have to be crawling or something yeah but that it didn't and it, i didn't remember that i was surprised yeah. that it didn't huh yeah you know i bet if the movie had a higher budget that's exactly what they would have done some sort of yeah. weird changing scale issue uh-huh like An we watched illusion and yeah we watched a video on youtube after watching this movie because i wanted some sort of explanation for what just happened and one of the points in the video that we watched was, hey, listen, they wanted this much budget. They got that much budget. And so yeah. they planned everything as if they had this higher budget and then just work, got creative for how to make it work with a smaller amount of money. And that really strikes me yeah. as a Terry Gilliam way of thinking. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I want to put that on well, him. that's just Terry Gilliam's yeah. career. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have enough money to pay 15 people to animate this thing in South Korea, so I'm going to just have to do it myself, and I can't draw, so I'm going to cut some stuff out of a magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just go from there. And I, that that aesthetic, though, is, I think, what makes his movie so wonderful yeah. to me. Yeah, it's in the spirit of the film, and I think that's like, yeah. you know, okay, we're doing this now. You know, this is what we wanted to do, but we can't. So I guess we're doing this now. Yeah. And I think that's that, that comes through in the movie. I think what I appreciate most about this effect of them pushing a section of wall down a hallway is that the molding and the floor. Mm. Uh, what do you call yeah. the, the bars down at the bottom of the floor? Um, the floorboards or the or kickboards. Think, or the floorboards. Yeah, the kickboards yeah. and the mold, molding, they continue down that hallway. Like, yeah. It's not just that they've continued the wallpaper, but no, they finished off those walls completely. <laughs> yeah. And that is a detail that they didn't necessarily need to include. And I appreciate that it's still there. And they had to make those special little cutouts for the moving section so that it slid mm-hmm. along those details. Yeah. 
Yeah, fantastic. Well, and then that brings us back to what um, Duncan was saying. Maybe they wanted a hallway that stretched, that appeared to stretch. And the best they could do was just finish the wallpaper and the molding down so that it would roll with it. Had he had enough money, it would have actually stretched out. They would have been pushing against this this uh, thing in order to get to the door. Yeah, maybe. So Julie was talking about thinking it would get smaller and smaller. My impression was that it would just keep stretching down, and I didn't quite know where it was going to end up. Sort of up. like a latex but, balloon situation? Right, okay. right. And it would, and it was just stretching out, and that's why this thing continues to be finished all the way down. But now that we're adults and had the benefit of watching Star Trek and seeing all kinds of weird things um, uh, theorized about, what if this is just time distortion, wormhole distortion, just repeating the last layer of his room over and over again? Oh, I like that idea. Yeah, I think that makes the most sense because. His room isn't being destroyed. His room is fine structurally. Right. So it would make a lot of sense that once they go through this time door... Real- it, that reality still has to keep providing yes, something. That the room you know, snaps back into place. That time repairs itself once that hole is closed temporarily. Just like the wormholes close when they're done. Okay, that would make sense. Yeah, I like that. So that goes back to something we were talking in the last minute of where does this hallway go once they go through it. Okay, I just had a thought. What if, norm under normal circumstances, they would be able to push through this wall and go directly into the time hole, but the hallway is creating itself because the Supreme Being has caught up to them and doesn't necessarily want them to be able to escape immediately. Ooh. So this hallway is being created by the Supreme Being because he wants to catch up with them, and they just happen to push it so far that it breaks through whatever artificial barrier has been created for this situation. Like the Supreme being was hoping that they would just stop and listen, but because they kept pushing, mm. they broke through that construction. I like that. Uh, interesting. Yeah. I really like that theory because it answers the question of why does this one function differently than other times? Yes. Mm-hmm. And the answer is the Supreme being is making this happen. Oh, like he almost funneled them into a trap. And then, right. and then the trap failed because they managed to push out through the wall. And that's why it wasn't on the map. And that's why it's not like a, a time hole like we before. Yeah, that's great. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if maybe he deliberately directed them there. I yeah. really like that because the big reveal at the end is that the Supreme Being knew what was happening the whole time and was like, yeah. hey, I need them to do this thing, but they have to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. So maybe we end up in Kevin's room exiting and entering in such peculiar ways because funnel. Hey, I, I need yeah. I need them to be at a certain yeah. place at a certain time. So we're going to take this detour to affect the ultimate outcome. So it's not so much that the Supreme Being wanted them to stop and listen. He just wanted to have them in a situation where they needed to physically invest that energy to get away uh, in a way to almost galvanize them towards their quest yes. that they're working towards. Okay, do you know, you you might know not know this because you're usually the faster walker. So when you are walking with somebody, your steps naturally align, but sometimes they're off. And one of you needs to take like a skip to get back on the correct rhythm. And that person's usually me. I don't think you pay attention to that. But I'll do like this pause and a hop so that I get on the right pattern. So I'm I'm taking a moment and tweaking the way that I'm walking so that 
it smooths out in the end. Okay. So I think that's kind of the same thing that the Supreme Being is doing with them here. Okay. Like, we just need to tweak the rhythm or a little. He, or he needs to put them in a position where they can, because it's all about... Just... That's very true. It's all yes. about free will. And I think I think they might not have managed to push the wall far enough without <laughs> Kevin's help. So Kevin's the crux. Like, Kevin's the one that has to make the choice. Because once he puts his back into it, uh, then it really starts co- and so I think that um, I think that the point of the supreme being might be like okay we got to put this mortal in this position and if he says uh, sorry guys I'm not going to join you then they'll be caught but once he joins in on pushing the wall then they then can, they can then move they can forward in their adventure I, yeah. I really like the idea that the supreme being's plan would have worked if it weren't for that meddling kid that he didn't <laughs> take into account yeah <laughs> Yeah, oh, it was boy. the supreme being this whole time, and I would have gotten away with it too. All right. So I have a quick question because we are looking at the supreme being floating through this scene. Are are go. either of you familiar with a character called the Sovereign from the Venture Brother cartoons? Yeah. Okay. Basically. So when I first saw the supreme intelligence, that was the first thing I thought of because the Sovereign presents itself as a heavily shaded floating head, albeit the color scheme is different. In the Venture Brothers cartoon, it is a giant red hologram face as opposed to a large floating white face in mm-hmm. this movie. But I I thought it interesting that it is such a strong image of this floating head with the large forehead and the angular face. Uh, it actually made me chuckle a bit because I know that Sean Connery is coming later in this movie. And I know that Sean Connery has experience with large floating heads that are talking to him. So I, I, got, a, I got a little bit of a Zardoz. Are we going to have a Zardoz situation? <laughs> That's funny. I genuinely, at this point Spick I was still waiting for Sean Connery. So every time somebody new came on screen, I'm like, Oh, is this Sean Connery? So I was right. I thought for a moment, hey, is is this Sean Connery? Is he finally here? No. No, he's not. Mm-hmm. No. Well, and I was I was ten, so I didn't really know who Sean Connery was. I didn't know who Shelley Duvall was. I didn't I didn't know who Monty Python was. I was just seeing actors. So there was no kind of looking forward to that for me. I was just enjoying it as it was being presented yeah, to me. I was also pretty out of the loop on the star power. Like my dad yeah. knew who Sean Connery was and was a huge fan. Um, yeah, my dad wasn't going to this movie with me. But uh, they, uh, he, you know, when when Sean Connery came on the film, I think I remember my dad going, "Oh, cool," or something. I was like, "Okay, sure." Well, and I recognize. Here's my here's my story. When I saw a James Bond movie, I was like, "Oh, that's the guy from Time Bandit." <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. great. Because I wasn't old enough to watch those sex yeah. movies when I was 10. Yeah, yeah, I experienced them as something other than, uh, you know, Queen King Agamemnon. Like, yeah, everything after this was like, oh, that's the guy from Time Down. That's, that's exactly, yeah, exactly it. I like the, uh, the, the bits of comedy that we get during the wall pushing here because uh, they get that more, that, that more sort of vaudevillian thing where they're like, okay, push it. They- you know, and they push, and then he's like, you know, no, no. Oh, that's the other thing. The sound of the wall moving is kind of like the big blah from the uh, from the Christopher Nolan <laughs> movie trailers. You know that yeah. kind of that kind of sound. But then, yeah, um, Randall's like, no, no, not like that. Wait for me to give the order. All right, ready. 
one, and then they all charge and push him, <laughs> right? And then he's like, stop, stop. You never start on one. Whoever heard of Whoever heard of anybody? Nobody starts on one. And then Og's like, well, what is it then? Two or three? And he's like, three. And then they're all like, yeah. And they push again into the wall. And uh, that was a nice little nice little bit of I think that, comedy right that was the, that I think that is the only piece of comedy in the entire movie that even when I was 10... Made me cringe a little because oh, yeah. it's so it's such a threes company moment. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, who is on first anyway? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you get down to it. It presents an interesting debate. Are you the kind of person that prefers to count, okay, we go on three, one, two, three, or are you the kind of person that says, okay, we go on one, three, two, one? Do you prefer a count up or a count down? Oh, I don't believe in preferences. I believe in <laughs> There's a lot of variation in how people count. You could go on three or go after three. One, two, three, go, or one, two, go. So if you're doing a count, you have to negotiate beforehand how it's exactly going to go. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to end yeah. up like these guys uh, in their lines where nothing is working. My favorite part of this is that by the script, nothing's happening yeah. because they can't get on board with each other. But in the movie, physically, they're doing just fine. Yeah, and then the you have the wall is going yeah. down the the wall is going down the hall just fine. Yeah, and then you have those madmen that are like, okay, we're going to count, and then I'm going to say a word after counting, and we go on the word, and it's like, yeah. well, what are you doing? You're you're mixing mediums here. <laughs> you absolute madman. Yeah, like one, two, three. Oh, oh. Well, and, and we can really get into it because for people that start on three, do you start on th or do you start on e? <laughs> like in, See, in theory, you have to negotiate. That's why I like I. Okay, let's just let's just do a run around. Let's go around the table. I'll start. I'm a three, two, one, go person. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm a three, two, one, go because it's got that nice hard. It's got that nice hard consonant where you just go. Right. <laughs> That's me. Let's go to, uh, I'm just going to go clockwise here. Let's start with Rick. I am one of those people, I love a good countdown because space. <laughs> and so it's a three, two, one. And you go on one. And you, and wow, you go okay. on the one. So I don't wow. really agree with Randall because I am the kind of person that you will go on a one, but I won't begin with the one. All right. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Julia. I am a one, two, three, go. Ah. I don't even know you anymore. Yeah, good for you. We're, How do we accomplish anything? We're, we're, off, we're opposite, but we get there. We, we both got the go. The go, the hard G and the go is how you do it. So far, there's two people that are right in this conversation. <laughs> no, I'm uh, I'm really thrilled that we have four different takes here. I'm like... Uh, oh, no, no, yeah, but we haven't heard yours. You're, you're not getting out of this. No, so I'm, a, I'm a one, two, three, and uh, you go on three. Yeah. No go, and wow. you, you go on the, the, the TH of three. One, two, three. Yeah. I just want to know who's out there pronouncing three as a two-syllable word that you need to distinguish between the <laughs> thra no, no. and the e. A southern thing. Thra-e. One, two, <laughs> three. <laughs> Well, I mean, they add extra symbols. that question. A one, a two, <laughs> a two, three. <laughs> Listen, they're just some good old boys. They never meant no harm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, one of, them is, uh, one of them is a fan of the Confederate Army. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we've got, um, <laughs> we've got, uh, visually, I think, 
we were talking about this earlier about it not being mentioned in the script and them just not getting anywhere. Julie was saying they're doing just fine. I feel like it's in between because because they're not coordinating. Yeah, they're falling down. They they push it a little ways, but then they fall down. They're getting their feet tripped up. Yeah, one side of the wall is going faster than the other side. You know, like there's chaos going on. Yeah, it's very and it's that's very where... chaotic. That's that's just why I like about that theory that they won't they wouldn't have escaped without Kevin's because I think and, they're, and they're... it's when Kevin yeah and it's when Kevin shows up that they do finally start like making real progress. That's when the score starts. Yeah, da, 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 and we've got and now we're now we're making forward progress, and that's when the chase starts. Yeah, yeah, we get this, uh, this peal of thunder and lightning. A huge light erupts behind Kevin near the window beside his bed, and uh, the bandits all quail and shriek. They say, "He found us!" And uh, Kevin looks back over his shoulder, and we just see uh, this first shot. We just see the silhouette of the giant floating head in, in white glowing fog hovering above Kevin's bed, and uh, the music ramps up. And uh, this is where Kevin does his like looking at the floating head looking at the fleeing bandits looking at the floating head and going uh, okay i'm going with the bandits <laughs> are you team dwarf or are you team disembodied head i think i'm team dwarf i i gotta say i don't know right here i want to break our format just a little bit duncan because this is important in the script the supreme being is a glow-in-the-dark eyed monkey or old man. Well, there's a picture. Yeah, there's a picture of it. And the picture is a backlit human with wild Phyllis Diller hair, but their entire face and frontal is in shadow. And they have two pinprick, two white glowing pinprick eyes. It's uh, a lot scarier than what we get. And what we get is pretty scary. So, yes. Yeah. What? Just, a, just an up and down vote. What's scarier? The floating head? Or this thing. Well, the picture that I'm looking at in the packet, it almost reminds me of a silhouette of something you would see from, let's see, the cast of Cats back in the 90s did a recorded stage performance. And that is the image that is conjured in my head when you see this, you know, pinprick eyes, crazy hair. I imagine, oh, is that McCavity? the the danger cat or something like that from the stage production of cats and so that just brings up all sorts of anxieties in my head that i <laughs> i would prefer the floating head that reminded me of the goofy cartoon show instead of something that is a cross between broadway and maybe an are you afraid uh, a a scary stories to tell in the dark illustration yeah for me, the uh, the the person in the costume with the glowing eyes feels way too real and scary. Yeah, compared to just an overwhelmingly sort of cartoony thing. I think I have more respect for the power of the cartoon thing, and I'm more afraid for my life with this uh, this hairy thing with the glowing yeah. eyes. Yeah, it looks like a ghoul or a wraith or something. It's not like a yeah. There's something scary about the floating head, but it's also like a an authoritative presence like there's something scary about the power that it represents not that it might steal your soul or eat your brains or something like it reminds me of the what's the 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 top lit faces in the beginning of uh superman 2 mm. when they yeah when they sentence uh zod and everybody to the phantom zone when they're just going around and they're all saying guilty guilty well and this photo itself is done in such a way that if you have an imagination the face can start morphing on you you can yeah as, as you look at it, you'll at one time see something like a werewolf face, yeah. and then it'll seem to be a, an ostrich face, and then it'll seem to be like some sort of, I don't know, 
definitely some sort of bird. It, it, it can at times, as you're glancing at it, resign you or remind you of like the really bad failed monster attempt in The Empire Strikes Back, the Wampa creature. Yeah. Only somehow he's got Jedi, Jedi robes on, <laughs> but he's got this burned out finger. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. The robes kind of look like they're made of that reflective material too in this in this photograph. I'm not sure if that's... They kind of do, yeah. Right, so it would be... That stuff that they wrapped around the sticks to make the lightsabers? Yeah, so it would be totally glowing you know, if they had gone this way. I'd, I would love to see footage of it. I wish if there was existing footage of how it worked or didn't work. I think I'd... At the end of the day, I think I'd much rather see a face than see the the black void where a face yeah. should be. Yeah. 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 So we get the shot of this giant head floating, following him down. It looks like a high contrast rotoscoped animation of an underlip face here. Like, I think this is something that they, they worked a long time on. And, um, and it's saying with fantastic British enunciation, it's going, return what you have stolen. And there's... In a sound system in a movie theater, this was going through your bones. Like this whole this whole moment was just like, oh my god, what is happening? It's so uh, it was so scary. Now is this now this is this is so hard because of the lighting to tell. But is this Ralph Richardson? I, uh, is it? I was just going to ask you that question. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure it's the same actor that plays the Supreme being at the end. But because you don't but, see that, but hair, his head, the top of his head is a lot bigger than he's more round, you know, not long faced. Yeah, but you've got the monster. you've got the the monster lighting. Yeah, and maybe he's got his forehead pitched towards the camera a little bit, so there's a perspective trick going on, or, yep, or something. Because yep. well, and and the other problem is in this minute we've only got him for like two yeah, seconds. Yeah, yeah, briefly. We don't we don't get a good look. Mm-hmm. Mostly we see that first thing where it's just a dark head that's backlit with uh, the fog all around it. Yeah. Yeah, coming in through the window. <laughs> I just love yeah. it. It's all these in-camera onset effects that are just so effective, you know? It's a real sense Well, and of then danger. and then also just to tie this just to tie this to the end. I've got a note here to to just mark this. Right now, okay. Rick and Julia, you're probably not going to I'm going to talk with Duncan about a thing that we've been that's been an ongoing sort of debate. Um, I've got a theory that there this is a dream. Not exactly the kind of dream that you have normally that you wake up from in a sitcom, but that this is all like Kevin. Well, and actually, this is originally Alan. Um, oh, oh, oh! What's Alan's last name? Which Alan are we Alan, talking about? Our guest from two. Oh, shows ago. Uh, Saunders, Alan J. Saunders. Alan Saunders. This is originally Alan Saunders' theory yeah. that that we're a couple layers down here. Okay, so Rick and Julie, I'll just explain what this theory is. We're a couple of layers down into Kevin's psyche. Kevin is actually an adult, and he's having a dream that's helping him cope with the loss of his parents from when he was young, and this dream is just one way of explaining that. Because his parents actually died in the fire, and he got adopted by the... <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm, I'm really giving you the short version. And he got adopted by the fireman... And now, as an adult, he's having a dream about being a kid, and that's how this is all coming about. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, yeah. I'm following. Child brain kind of interpreted the events of of what happened. Processing the trauma. Right. Processing the trauma dream is is kind of the working theory right now. Mm -hmm. So, we've got the Supreme Being coming in through the window, and there's all this smoke that's accompanying it. Right? So, this is the part where he departs from his bedroom... And when he comes back to the bedroom, his bedroom's full of smoke. Interesting. Oh, that is so an got... excellent point. So this might be so, smoke from the fire, as you're saying. 
Right. This could be his brain starting to recognize the fire, and he's sleeping in the smoke for the rest of the for the rest of the few minutes, however long it takes the the fireman to break in to rescue him. Oh, I like that. And this dream is happening in those moments. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... so I just wanted to, I just wanted to make a note that we're at one of those other things where we're talking about the couple of layers down dream theory. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Alrighty, and that's really all I've got to say about. It. I don't have anything deep to say. <laughs> one, uh, one thing I like about this moment is all of Kevin's drawings are blowing around in the wind like dead leaves in the fall or something. Mm. And this is something that this is something that um, that Terry Gilliam does in a lot of his movies. He's a big fan of like, okay, we need 500 pieces of crumpled up paper and a fan, you know, and some fog, <laughs> yeah. and uh, let's go. And it's very, it's ex- extremely effective. You know, you're suddenly you're looking at all this stuff buzzing around, and you might not notice that the set is kind of bare bones or something. But it's uh, it really it really paints it. If Terry Gilliam is anything, he's the master of creating atmosphere. Yeah, 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 and and getting a, a five dollar shot that looks like it caught fifty dollars. He's every penny's on screen because this the budget was five million dollars for this. Sounds right. Yeah, it's pretty low for what you get. The Time Bandits Minute is a fan project hosted by Curtis Blaze and Duncan Shields. The movie Time Bandits was written by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin and is presented by Handmade Films. The novel Time Bandits was written by Charles Alverson and is based on a screenplay by Michael Palin and Terry Gilliam. It is published by Severn House Publishing. The comic book adaptation Time Bandits was written by the team at Marvel Comics and presented by Stan Lee. The screenplay, Time Bandits Movie Script, was written by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin. It was published by Doubleday Dolphin Books. You can find more of us at timebanditsminute.com or text us at 712-830-7373. You can also find us at Facebook at Time Bandits Minute, the podcast. Thank you to the Star Wars Minute guys for graciously allowing us to steal the format. If you would like to listen to other Movies by Minutes podcasts, check out moviesbyminutes.com. Join us next minute for Minute 12, when you hear the Supreme Being say, Return, return the map.